So our uh, final speaker is a, both a personal as well as professional uh, pleasure for me to introduce uh, Serena Spudich, is an associate professor of neurology at uh, Yale School of Medicine, a relatively recent arrival and I would say a gift from San Francisco. Um, he's a wonderful clinician um, committed to um, working with HIV patients and also uncovering many of the thorny issues in terms of um, neurologic problems in people with HIV in a very thoughtful and um, scientific way. So, Serena. Thanks very much. Thank you, Jerry. So, what I'm going to be talking to you about today is cognitive impairment in our HIV-infected patients and thinking about what some of the new contributions to cognitive impairment might be in the current era of treatment. So the first thing we're going to think about is simply what is the status of cognitive impairment? Is there still cognitive impairment in HIV patients in the current era in the setting of good retroviral treatment? The next question is what are the possible mechanisms of continued impairment in patients who are on therapy? I'll then talk to you a little bit about what we know specifically about cerebrovascular disease in HIV and a little bit of new data showing some changes in the rates of things like stroke in patients who are HIV infected. Finally, I'm going to talk about some new studies that have come out in the last couple of years which do show some association between vascular risk factors and cognitive impairment in HIV. So first we're going to sort of go over what we know about cognitive impairment in the current era in HIV. And we'll start with really what we consider the old news. So in the early 80s, the beginning of the epidemic, um, what we started recognizing, and many physicians in New York were some of the first to describe, that patients with HIV infection developed a severe dementia. And this actually occurred in 20 to 30% of patients who reached advanced AIDS. In the early stages, this was um, a combination of a cognitive, a motor, and a behavioral kind of syndrome, where patients would have some slowness, thinking about frailty, in fact, and walking slowly, slowness, difficulty with uh, processing, um, some apathy and personality changes, and inattention. And then in the later stages of the disease, in fact, often progressing over just a few months, patients would develop frank dementia. So I'm sure many of you have seen patients who are unable to really have any spontaneous speech, can't move or walk, or incontinent. And that's really the, the this was described as initially as the AIDS dementia complex with an early stage or a late stage. And the, the scans at the bottom show a patient's brain who has advanced AIDS dementia complex, which was associated with cerebral atrophy, so basically brain shrinking, and other white matter changes that were evident on scans. This was also associated with a very typical type of encephalitis in the brain, which is shown in the pathology. So the good news, of course, everybody knows, is that with the advent of combination ART, we saw not only a decline in the non-CNS diseases, the incidence of new non-CNS diseases, shown in blue, but also a very nice parallel decline in CNS diseases. So at the end of the 90s, people started saying, well, gosh, brain diseases in HIV are no longer going to be a concern. We're not going to see dementia. And in fact, we don't see dementia very often in treated patients. And so we've kind of solved the puzzle of the brain and HIV. We don't need to worry about it anymore. However, unfortunately, there's been recognized, I think, by many, many patients and many providers and many researchers in the field that really there probably is persistent impairment in patients on treatment. 
And I think this has now turned into sort of the main thrust of the field of people who are focusing on CNS HIV and the brain in HIV is understanding what is driving this persistent impairment that patients are experiencing and how do we overcome it. So this is being described now using a new term called HIV-associated neurocognitive disorder, or HAND. And HAND is actually defined as a range of from, ranging from something called asymptomatic neurocognitive impairment, where patients have abnormalities on neuropsychological testing, but no symptoms at all, to having a milder form where they may have some abnormalities on testing and mild symptoms, and then having patients who are frankly demented. And several large studies in the last couple of years have come out which have shown that basically using neuropsych testing as the tool to define this, this disorder of hand, and then with the addition of patients' lack or presence of symptoms on top of that, there's still actually almost 50% of patients who are having some form of this disorder. So this pie chart basically shows that the blue swath is all patients who have normal neurocognitive function on testing and no symptoms. We still have a lot of patients who are fine. However, 33% of patients are uh, abnormal on testing, and this is abnormal meaning given a battery of tests, there are 1.5 standard deviations below the mean in more than two modalities of testing. So it's fairly substantial abnormality. It's not simply an abnormality on a single test. And then you can see that 12% of patients still have this milder form of the disorder with some symptoms, and now a very small proportion still have dementia. So this is data from the charter cohort, and this cohort has um, a, a variety of confounders in the cohort. And so one of the things I've done here is I've shown you the data of patients who don't have, for example, active seizures, severe head trauma, severe psychiatric disease. These numbers are referring to patients who are not severely confounded. There are other confounding issues such as hepatitis and those kinds of things which are not corrected for here. The charter data did show that patients who had complete virologic suppression, so who had undetectable viral loads, and who had a CD4 nadir greater than 200, had a better, uh, had a lower proportion of impairment, and overall had about a 39% impairment versus uh, 47%. So it does seem that really tight virologic control and a higher CD4 nadir is probably beneficial for patients in the charter. However, describing this, trying to understand what the etiology of this is, has become sort of the, the now the new mission, I think, of, of the, the group of people interested in this problem. So as I said, these, the patients who have between asymptomatic neurocognitive impairment, mild neurocognitive disorder, and HIV dementia, this is now referred to as HAND. And I'll show you that in a few other slides. So what are the possible mechanisms of neurological injury in the setting of antiretroviral therapy? This is presuming, of course, that what we're seeing is happening while patients are on therapy. I think there's probably a large contribution of injury that recurs before patients get started on treatment. But now we're going to think about, once you have a patient on treatment, what could be contributing to ongoing disease? And I think this is something that's really uh, bears going back to understanding how the neuropathies of HIV in the brain used to be thought to be incurring, and now thinking about what could be different now. So this slide basically shows HIV-infected monocytes, which are the star-like cells at the bottom, and lymphocytes, the yellow cells at the bottom, traversing in the blood. So the red star shapes inside those uh, cells are showing that they're infected. They're crossing the blood-brain barrier. So this is called the Trojan horse mechanism, where virus is basically hidden in the immune cells, crossing the blood-brain barrier and entering into the upper part of the slide, which is the brain tissue. Those cells end up uh, populating the nervous system. So the monocytes turn into tissue macrophages, which then establish themselves around blood vessels and continue to propagate virus. 
So not only do they produce virus and infect other cells, so microglial cells and astrocytes are two other cells in the slide, which can then also propagate more virus. They also set up an inflammatory cascade so that as the cells are producing virus, inflammatory toxins are being released and injuring neurons. So then you have death of the neurons from these, the neurotoxicities, and these fade away. And you also have new compartmentalized infection. As you have replication within these cells, you have a local infection which is carried out and can allow for brain-only virus strains which may be necessarily resistant to certain drugs. So this is what we think causes the overt dementia that we used to see before antiretroviral therapy. But the puzzle is now we have patients who have suppressed HIV RNA levels. We don't think that we have a lot of new trafficking of virus into the CNS, for example, in that setting. But we still have patients who have impairment. So why is this? And the question is, has the neuropathogenesis changed? Do we no longer rely on this trafficking virus and this influx and replication of viruses in the CNS? Is that not the obvious cause anymore? I think my slides are forwarding on their own. Um, so what I'm going to talk about is the, a, a nice study which really looked at this or tried to look at this, which was a, plenty, a, a pathologic study looking at the brains of patients who died with HIV. Many of these patients actually died in the antiretroviral, combination antiretroviral therapy era. So they have, there's 589 autopsies where brains were examined to look for signs of typical brain pathology associated with HIV, so typical encephalitis, typical inflammatory nodules, versus other changes which may suggest that HIV dementia is not necessarily caused by those old typical changes anymore. And these patients were 82% male, 40, almost 46 years at death, only 46% were actually on ART at the time of death because many patients came off ART just prior to death. But most of the patients had been suppressed on therapy for a long time before death. And in this population, there was a very, very high prevalence of what was determined as HAND in life. I think that's an important thing because HAND here is thought of as being HIV-associated neurocognitive disorder, but actually pathologically, we're not sure what underlies it. So what, what was found was that, in fact, the classic HIV brain pathology of microglial nodules and encephalitis was much reduced in the current era. So only 17% of patients had that classic pathology. But many patients had other non-infectious pathology, including vascular pathology, so abnormality of blood vessels, of the caliber of blood vessels, small vessel strokes, other kinds of changes which were still considered quite abnormal compared to HIV-uninfected patients. The other thing that was very interesting is that the, HIV, the patients who were diagnosed in life as having HAND, the diagnosis of HAND did not correlate with classical HIV brain pathology. So things like microglial nodules or encephalitis was not associated with HAND. Instead, HAND was associated with non-infectious abnormalities. So things like vascular abnormalities on the pathology was actually what seemed to correlate better with the clinical syndrome of cognitive impairment in life. So... And this is just a slide showing that, again, that the typical things like HIV encephalitis and microglial nodules are no longer seen, but in the current era, and this is from a, a paper that looks specifically at patients who had been suppressed on therapy for a long time before death, still shows a great amount of abnormality of microglial activation and of abnormalities around blood vessels in patients who died on antiretroviral therapy. So despite therapy, they still have a great deal of abnormality. So... One of the questions is, then why do we, what is the neuropathogenesis in the current era? We think it's different than it was before, so what, what's really causing it? I think one important possibility is that we have viral persistence in the CNS, 
and this is, goes to this issue of whether or not we're not targeting the CNS properly with our antiretroviral drugs. So do we have a reduced level of antiretrovirals in the brain tissue compartment? Um, and just to get at that question quickly, I'm going to show you a couple of slides um, asking this question about antiretroviral penetration. And I wanted to know what the group thinks about whether or not they would take into account antiretroviral penetration when they're choosing an antiretroviral regimen. So would you never take it into, would you always take it into account? Would you never take it into account? Or would you take it into account if you have a patient with antiretroviral, with cognitive impairment? Wow. Well, that's very interesting because I think that this is an area of enormous controversy. And I'm interested to see that because that's probably in many cases what I might recommend given certain cases. But I think really the jury's out on whether or not we know for sure that even in patients with cognitive impairment, there's an improvement if you use antiretroviral therapy with better CNS penetration. And just to define this issue of the CNS penetration, there's been a lot of controversy about this concept, but there's been a sort of a way of thinking about it, a model of thinking about it, based on what's considered CNS penetration effectiveness, where basically antiretroviral dr drugs are judged either based on pharmacokinetic properties or on proven efficacy in CNS studies where they had a clinical outcome or simply on CSF viral loads, a CSF suppression of, of HIV. And they've basically been, all of these components have been taken into account to form a table, CNS penetration effectiveness table, um, which has been published in 2007 originally, and this is an updated version from, presented at CROI by Scott LaTonder, where basically each single drug is given a score based on the, the perceived antiretroviral penetration of that drug. And then to create a CPE score for any given regimen, you simply add up the total of each of the individual scores. So for example, a tripla would include emtricitabine giving a three, efavirenz giving a three, and tenofovir giving a one, in which case this total score would be a seven. So one of the interesting things that we've seen is that in the current era and current regimens and the new recommended original starting guideline therapies, many of the drugs actually have sort of moderate to low CNS penetration compared to many of the drugs that were, were historically used much more often but are now considered sort of second line or, or options or alternatives but not preferred therapies. And in terms of uh, data, what I would say overall is that the actual literature suggesting that CNS penetration effectiveness is important in outcomes is very, very mixed. And I could show you a slide that lists about 25 studies that have somehow tried to get at this question. Most of those studies have been cross-sectional studies where patients were started on different antiretroviral regimens for a whole variety of reasons, which in itself introduces a real bias into the drugs they're on and what the exams are like of the patients. But I think there are a few studies that have been good and that have shown some interesting findings. So first of all, several studies have shown that definitely drugs with higher CPE scores actually result in a lower CSF viral load. There was also a large study, which was an evaluation of the CHIC cohort in Europe, which suggested that in longitudinal follow-up, the risk of developing any CNS disease, not necessarily HIV dementia, but any type of CNS disease in HIV-infected patients was not related either to current or prior uh, CPE score, so that somehow CPE score didn't seem to be protecting patients in a longitudinal study in a very large study. One smaller study that was published in AIDS from the ACTG cohort um, actually showed that patients who were started on regimens actually had a lower 
uh, neuropsychological performance or worsened neuropsychological performance with higher CPE regimens, which may be counterintuitive. Um, and finally, can I go back with my slides? Thank you. And finally, there have been a couple of studies, and I think these are good studies, which have shown that when patients were started, patients who had cognitive impairment at baseline were started on CPE scores, with drugs with CPE scores that were higher, actually did have more improvement than patients who were started on lower CPE regimens. But these were two studies, one of which was done in Italy on patients who were quite severely cognitively impaired at baseline. They were essentially demented. They started two different regimens, and the ones randomized to regimens with higher CPE scores had a better improvement. The other study is a study uh, in the ACTG, which basically was a very large cohort of patients, and they did show better improvement in neuropsychological test scores with higher CPE regimens, but only in patients on three or more, more than three drugs. So I think the fact that they were on more than three drugs probably sets them apart, and there's probably reasons that those patients needed to have higher CPE regimens based on something about the stage of their disease. So overall, I think this is a very controversial issue, and I think there's, there's not a quick answer to it. I think it maybe should be considered in certain cases. But overall, the data does not strongly support sort of arbitrarily using or empirically using higher CPE regimens in patients. But the other thing that I wanted to get back to is this question of what else could be driving ongoing um, persistence of neurocognitive impairment in our patients. We talked about viral persistence. We talked a lot today. We heard a lot about continued immune activation in patients on therapy. There's also the possibility of comorbidities, which has been raised a lot today as well. Patients are, have, use IV drugs. They have hepatitis C, other kinds of impairments. It's forwarding again. Um, but so going back again, can I go back? But one of the major issues that's come up is there have been several studies recently that have suggested that actually vascular disease markers, which we know are also increased, as you heard earlier by Dr. Stein, in HIV disease associated with cardiovascular disease, may actually also be associated with uh, cognitive impairment in patients with HIV. So we're going to focus on that for the rest of the talk. And the next, this is another audience response question, which I think is a, actually kind of interesting educational one. So each of the following regarding HIV and cerebrovascular disease, so stroke type of syndromes, is true, except national guidelines recommend HIV testing in all patients presenting with stroke. Brain hemorrhages are increasing in patients in HIV. Increases in ischemic stroke in HIV patients are explained by a greater prevalence of HIV. Increases in ischemic stroke in HIV patients are explained by PI use. And HIV associated, is associated with an increased risk of stroke for women. Yeah, so actually the right answer here is number two, or the incorrect answer is number two. So all the other are correct. In fact, national guidelines for stroke that have been released just this year now recommend every single stroke patient presenting to the hospital or to the emergency department should be tested for HIV. Um, and the, the answer that's incorrect, actually, is the brain hemorrhages. And in fact, brain hemorrhages are not increasing in HIV. They're decreasing in HIV. But all these others are, are partly at least true. So... What do we know about cerebrovascular disease and HIV? I think there's been a couple of recent studies that are just suggestive and interesting to think about. I think many of the caveats that we heard about cardiovascular disease and HIV also hold true for stroke and HIV. The incidence of stroke in HIV patients is still quite low, and this probably has a lot to do with the demographic of patients who have HIV, and they're still young patients. But the interesting things that have been noticed over the last few years is that the incidence of ischemic stroke in HIV patients seems to be increasing over time. So one large study that was published last year 
um, based out of UCLA, looked at the nationwide inpatient sample. So it's a huge, huge patient sample, which bases the research study on ICD-9 codes, so patients who have ICD-9 of HIV as well as a stroke diagnosis. And what they saw is that overall nationally in, non, in, in HIV and uninfected patients, overall stroke hospitalizations declined by 7%. And this may be due to a decreasing rate of hospitalization. It may also be due to actually a decreasing rate of stroke because we're getting better and better at controlling stroke risk factors. However, the number of patients who were hospitalized with stroke and HIV increased by 60% during this time. So in the next slide, I'll show you that the, basically the percent of patients who were admitted to the hospital with HIV infection with a diagnosis of a scenic stroke climbed dramatically between 1997 and 2006. And part of this may be, again, explained by the fact that the prevalence of HIV has increased over this time because we have many, many more patients who are living with HIV. However, there's still an increase based on just per patient admissions, and I'll show you in the next slide. Interesting, subarachnoid hemorrhage or other types of brain hemorrhage did not increase during this time. So this also suggests that actually there may be a specific vascular effect that's affecting um, ischemic-type disease or atherosclerotic-type disease in our patients, which is a little bit consistent with what we see in cardiovascular disease and HIV. So part of this can be explained by the fact that the HIV-infected population grew by 40% during this period, but the stroke hospitalizations in HIV patients increased from 90 to 129 per 100,000 during this period. So it's not simply that the base grew, but it's in fact that the number of strokes actually went up. Another study that was presented just at CROI two weeks ago, which I think is very interesting and, again, suggestive, although it really just shows associations rather than causation, is another study, and this was actually a corollary to one of the studies that was presented by Dr. Stein this morning. This is a cohort study in Boston with very, very uh, close records. And basically, patients were followed over time and compared to age and gender matched HIV uninfected patients. And this this study attempted at least to, to take into account the influence of other risk factors for strokes, smoking, diabetes, heart disease, hypertension, uh, dyslipidemia, and aspirin use. And what they found, actually, is that the risk of ischemic stroke was much higher in HIV-infected patients of certain demographics. So HIV-infected women who are shown in the brown bar in the center of the graph actually had a much higher risk of stroke than uninfected women. And overall, there was some difference between the overall group of uh, HIV-infected patients and uninfected patients. And the slide on the right actually shows that this, this increase in stroke incidence was much more prevalent in patients under age of 50. So above age of 50, the stroke incidence did not go up. But this, under age of 50, in the younger age groups, there was much higher incidence of stroke. So one of the things that might explain this simply is that they did not uh, control for all other risk factors associated with HIV infection. For example, IV drug use wasn't accounted for in their study. So many patients who are between 18 and 50 having a stroke may be actually associated with something like endocarditis, IV drug use, um, embolic stroke from that cause. However, that, that doesn't in itself seem to explain the large discrepancy between these two groups. So what are, the, what are some potential causes of this? And I think this is one possibility. These are the same kinds of things we think about for cardiovascular disease. Do we have um, increase in antiretroviral therapy use, including protease inhibitors? Is that causing this increase in stroke? Is it there's an aging, this overall aging of the population, so we're seeing a higher amount of stroke now than we used to because the shift of the age distribution that we just saw in Dr. McGulloch's talk is shifting over? Um, is it because of comorbidities? And I think that's something that is very, very likely to be contributing here, although it's very hard to account for all comorbidities properly. 
And finally, is there a vascular effect directly from HIV? Is the immune activation that we think drives um, endothelial damage and vascular changes resulting in cardiovascular disease, is that also resulting in stroke? And there have been some studies um, that have tried to look at this. One is group by Antis and his colleagues, where they reported on the metabolic syndrome, which was basically a cohort of symptoms including um, hypertension, obesity, um, glucose intolerance, and a variety of other kind of typical vascular risk factors. And they looked to see whether cryptogenic stroke, meaning a stroke not explained by a valvular heart disease or some other type of clear cause in HIV-infected patients was explained by the metabolic syndrome. And what they found is that actually hypertension, what did seem to be associated with cryptogenic stroke in HIV-infected patients, more so than uninfected patients, but none of the other risk factors seemed very clearly associated. Another study looked at the association between stiffness of the common carotid artery, so distensibility of the vessel, and found that there was actually not a strong association between distensibility of the common carotid and uh, stroke risk and, and HIV um, in treated patients, which is what they sought to look at originally. They thought that the effective proteus inhibitors would be common carotid artery stiffness, but in fact they found an increased stiffness in patients with HIV who were un untreated. So again, this goes back to the hypothesis that untreated inflammation is probably likely leading to vascular abnormalities, common carotid then leading to strokes. And finally, there's been one study that looked specifically at protease inhibitor use, and they were looking at two outcomes, sudden death and ischemic stroke. And actually, in this study, they did not find an increased incidence of ischemic stroke in patients on protease inhibitors. So they found increase in, uh, in sudden death with protease inhibitor use, but not with stroke. So finally, I think that we've talked a little bit about the fact that we still have impairment in HIV, that the pathogenesis of, of impairment is probably a little different than it was in the prior era, and that we clearly can see that there's some increase in ischemic stroke and overt stroke in HIV-infected patients. But I think saying that patients have overt strokes is different than saying that we know some kind of subtle, milder form of vascular disease is actually contributing to cognitive decline in our patients or the cognitive impairment that we're seeing. But there have been a couple of studies which suggest that vascular risk factors are actually clearly associated with the type of testing abnormalities that we see in our patients. And the largest study to suggest this, and the first study to suggest this, is actually coming also from the MAX cohort. So um, in this study, investigators from the MAX cohort compared patients who were HIV uninfected and patients who were HIV infected in a cardiovascular disease substudy. And in fact, all the patients who were enrolled in this study could have had no history of cardiovascular disease when they enrolled in the study. So they were sort of selected to be patients who could be observed over time without overt cardiovascular disease. They were, mo they were um, all men, they were mostly Caucasian, and they were uh, 49 years when they first were enrolled. And what they found is in trying to correct for um, all the different measures they looked at, they evaluated neuropsychological test scores. They evaluated um, subclinical cardiovascular disease using two different methods. They looked at coronary artery calcium, and they looked at carotid artery intermedia thickness. So the carotid artery intermedia thickness is thought to be an indicator of vascular damage associated with atherosclerosis. They also used laboratory methods and measures which are indicators of uh, typical sort of cardiovascular risk factors, cholesterol, glucose, uh, hemoglobin A1C, blood pressure, and heart rate. So they took all of these factors, and then they examined in their patients, both HIV-infected and uninfected, whether or not they correlated with neuropsychological testing. And they also integrated typical HIV serostatus type of uh, evaluations, so CD4 count, Nader CD4, viral load. 
And what they found, in fact, was that after they um, accounted for various factors such as education, depression, and race, which can all contribute to neuropsych testing changes, they found that CIMT, the carotid intermediate thickness, was associated with worse psychomotor speed and memory, so worse neurocognitive performance across the entire cohort. So for both HIV-infected and uninfected patients, CIMT was associated with worse neuropsychological testing, but in fact, HIV serostatus, so whether or not patients had HIV, did not have an effect. They only had an effect on memory performance. So the idea here was that basically the, the risk of, of dementia or the risk of cognitive impairment was more associated with whether or not you have atherosclerotic disease than whether or not you have HIV. And I think what we may be seeing is that many of our patients with HIV have many of these risk factors, and so this could be contributing. The one interesting finding is that for HIV-infected subjects, however, any residual viral load was actually associated with poorer performance. So most of these patients were suppressed, but not all of them, and the ones who were not suppressed were performing worse, which goes along with what we saw in the charter study, patients who had uncontrolled viremia were performing worse. So, in fact, their conclusions was that the effects of HIV on cognition are overshadowed by the effects of subclinical cardiovascular disease and related metabolic abnormalities. And it's an interesting kind of new message for those of us in the field who attribute all of these changes usually just to HIV. A couple of other studies have shown similar kinds of findings. So this is uh, data from the SMART study, where patients who were enrolled in Thailand, Australia, Brazil, and the U.S. were given a battery of neuropsych tests, and then the results on the tests were, were um, correlated with a variety of things, including cardiovascular risk factors, history of cardiovascular disease, as well as traditional HIV risk factors, so CD4 nadir, viral load, current CD4 count. And in fact, what their findings were is that cardiovascular disease was the one significant correlation with um, cognitive impairment. So none of the traditional risk factors for HIV, CD4 count, viral load, none of them correlated with cognitive performance. Cardiovascular previous history of cardiovascular disease had a very strong influence on current neuropsychological testing. Hepatitis B was also associated with worse overall performance. So again, the message from this study was, you know, maybe the HIV part of it's not so important. It's actually the fact that these patients have had prior cardiovascular disease, which is affecting their current cognitive status. Um, there have been a couple of other studies that have been presented in the last couple of years at CROI, and this isn't one more, that looked specifically, again, using the CIMT, the carotid intermediate thickness, and correlated that with lower neuropsychological performance in HIV-infected patients. Again, it was a small group of patients, but basically of all of the different factors they looked at, um, carotid intermediate thickness was one important uh, contributor to whether or not patients had a cognitive impairment. So all of these are sort of suggesting that there's this important influence of vascular risk factors. But what we really don't know is how to interpret what that means. So kind of to summarize, what I would say is, what do we know about cerebrovascular disease and HIV infection and cognitive impairment? First of all, impairment seems to persist. and It doesn't persist in all HIV-infected individuals. Many of our patients are fine and have no impairment and hopefully will live their whole lives without any major problems. But many patients are still experiencing impairment. And the, the pathogenesis of this impairment is probably different now than it was in the 80s and the early 90s before we had really effective combination CART. What we also know is that uh, overt strokes seem to have a higher prevalence and incidence in HIV-infected patients, and this is maybe particularly true in women and in young people. That's a kind of important new message and something to think about, I think, when we're evaluating our patients. And finally, some markers for cardiovascular risk, so including uh, systemic and cerebral vascular disease, do associate with neurocognitive performance. 
I'm using the word associate because we don't know that they're causative. We just know that they associate. So a few things. What can we conclude? We don't know whether these vascular disease markers, as I said, we know they're associated. But what does that really mean? Does that mean that they're causing the disease or not? I think one possibility is that patients who have vascular risks also are, have other risks that are giving them cognitive impairment. So they simply, it's an, unaffected, an unaccounted for comorbidity. I used the example before of IV drug use. So patients who have other um, smoking or hypertension may also be more likely to be having, using something like IV drugs. And we may not be able to correct for that properly when we're doing these kinds of studies. Those patients may also be at more risk for cognitive impairment. <clears throat> the other possibility is that these are sort of parallel effects. So these are actually really are, the vascular changes really are either HIV and, uh, directly or antiretroviral related effects. And they track with neurological disease, but they're not actually a direct causative pathway. So, for example, systemic immune activation causing vascular disease, and we're detecting the periphery, these signs of vascular abnormalities, systemic immune activation also driving brain injury through a totally different mechanism. So, again, they may simply be um, along the different pathways of the same sort of markers. Finally, we could actually be in a on a common pathway where vascular disease in the periphery is actually directly related to new vascular disease in the brain, and the vascular disease in the brain is causing small vessel injury in the brain, which is causing impairment in our patients. So <clears throat> what can we do about this? I think that the jury's still out about what we really can do about this, and I think most of this message is going to be similar to what you heard from Dr. Stein before. So first of all, screen consistently for cardiovascular risk factors. And I think you know that already, but I think this may be particularly something that we should be paying attention to in our women patients who typically are at lower risk for cardiovascular disease and maybe also looking at our younger patients under 50 because these may be patients who are more likely to have stroke um, in their particular age group or their typical demographic. The other thing to do, I think, is have a low threshold for assessment. So I see many patients actually in clinic that are referred by another provider who say, you know, my patient was complaining of a numb hand for a day a couple of weeks ago. Do you think I should actually think about it as a possible stroke? You know, could it just be that the patient slept funny or could it be the patient has a neuropathy? I think that we have to have a low threshold to actually consider these things as being real strokes or transient ischemic attacks and evaluate patients aggressively for those things now that we're learning that there's actually a higher rate of stroke in our patients, even at younger ages. <clears throat> we also obviously want to manage traditional cardiovascular risk factors, and you might even argue to manage them even more carefully or more aggressively than you would in patients who don't have these other sensitivities of their brain, for example, that may actually not be able to sustain more injury by small strokes or small vessel disease. And the last point, I think, is sort of the final point for this whole day, this whole conference, I think, is this issue of adherence. And, I, and time and time again, what it really comes down to is that patients do better when they're completely suppressed on therapy. <clears throat> and all of these other factors may be important, but I think optimizing adherence in our patients to really maintain an undetectable plasma HIV RNA may have an influence on their outcome. So I'd like to thank all the collaborators who contributed to this and take any questions. Thank you, Serena. That was great. Um, any questions from the audience? So um, I have a question, um, and it, it relates not so much to etiology, but the prevalence of these cognitive disorders. 
and whether we should be routinely actually doing neuropsychological testing <laughs> in patients who've been living with <coughs> HIV disease for substantial periods of time. Well, that's a great question, and there's a lot of discussion about that in the field right now. I think one of the problems is we don't know whether we don't know definitively whether patients who have sort of a mild form of impairment. Um, for example, the asymptomatic neurocognitive impairment that's only detected on neuropsychological testing, we don't really know what that means for their long-term prognosis. So there's one possibility is you could screen patients who have no symptoms, who probably are not significantly impaired in their work or anything like that, identify patients with some level of abnormality, and then what do you do with that information? There's, there's a study that was just reported at CROI this year that suggested that patients with asymptomatic neurocognitive impairment are actually at risk to progress to symptomatic neurocognitive disease. This was part of a charter study where they followed their patients long-term. So they found that their patients were at higher risk for progression, but if you look at that study carefully, many of their patients were not virologically suppressed. So they may be starting with asymptomatic cognitive impairment, and maybe the, the group that progressed may have been the patients who were not suppressed. So I would say that it's difficult to know whether screening just as a rule in all patients is useful. I do think, though, that if patients are complaining of symptoms, there probably is utility in doing some kind of screening or testing <clears throat> to gauge because many patients who have a small amount of complaint or experience a symptom actually have a much higher risk of having significant impairment that could be impacting their quality of life. Having said that, if you were going to do um, neurocognitive testing, what are the tests that you recommend? <laughs> this is like starting antiretroviral right, therapy right, timing, right? right. right? Right. I mean, it depends on what resources are available, and I think that one of the limitations that most of us experience is that getting a full battery of neuropsych testing on a patient can be very difficult, both in terms of uh, payee, payer issues as well as just access to um, good testing. I think getting a full battery neuropsych test where you actually make a referral is the ideal thing because not only is it helpful in kind of diagnosing the patient, but it actually therapeutically for the patient can identify areas in which they have more trouble or less trouble, and you can actually train or do some cognitive kind of training or rehabilitation based on the test results. On the other hand, there are several kind of office-type tests. So you can use an HIV dementia screen, which is basically a one-page test, um, a variety of different kinds of tests like that that have been validated in some settings. But I think usually those tests are going to pick up patients with more severe disease, and they're maybe not as useful for assessing the milder forms of complaints our patients have. Would that be true of the mini mental tests that a lot of us use? It's yeah, really yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I think it's worth doing because if the patient's, you know, getting a couple wrong on the mini mental, it's actually fairly abnormal. But if they're fine on the mini mental, it doesn't mean that they're fine. <laughs> so I've had patients who, um, uh, in, in whom the the, uh, neuro, I've referred to neuropsychological testing to try to distinguish between cognitive impairment and, uh, and depression. Yeah. And um, <coughs> could you comment on yeah, that? Yeah, sure. Well, that can be very difficult. So one of the hallmarks of HIV effects in the brain is it causes what's called a subcortical dementia. So many of the symptoms are things like the slowness, the sort of decreased spontaneous speech, um, slow speech, uh, slow movements, and as you all know, that's completely overlapping with many of the symptoms and signs of depression. And in fact, the kind of memory deficits and things like that that can be detected by testing can also be caused by depression. However, there's often one of the things that you do in part of a real battery of neuropsych tests is you have a certain number of mood, mood indices. So you actually have the patient answer questions and do some kind of index of mood, which can help to determine whether or not mood is likely to be a contributor that could generate some therapeutic um, right. oh, maneuvers, completely. if in fact yes. 
it seems like it's more likely depression, so right. that might be worth doing. Mm -hmm. um, okay, to turn a little bit in another direction, is there any indication to do an HIV viral load in the CSF? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, well, I think that there are situations in probably in which it's probably useful, but again, this is a whole new arena where there aren't large multi-center randomized studies to prove that these things are useful. But I think that in the routine treatment of a patient, it probably isn't necessary. So, you know, assessing a patient, starting them on their first regimen, watching them over time. I don't think that there's any clear indication that some kind of a screening viral load or, a, you know, checking somebody, making sure they're suppressed in their CSF is necessary. However, there are patients in whom they seem to be suppressed long-term in their blood, so you keep on seeing them, and they're either undetectable or they may have a few low-level blips, who can actually present with a progressive neurological disease. And there have been a couple of uh, cases reported in the last couple of years, and one large case series, large 11 patients, um, reported from a site in France, the Canestri study, which identified these types of patients, patients who look like they've been suppressed on therapy for a long time in the plasma, and then had a sort of incident and aggressively progressive neurological disease, so difficulty suddenly with their balance or difficulty with their memory or something that happened, not sort of a static disorder that was happening over a long period of time, but something that developed over a few weeks or months. And in those cases, those patients were then had a variety of different neurological evaluations, including a spinal tap, and all of those patients had what we call CSF escape. So they basically had um, either one log higher or even more HIV detectable in their CSF than the very low level in their blood, or they were undetectable in their blood and they had detectable virus in their CSF. So I think there are cases in which actually, and in those cases, all of those patients had sequencing then done for resistance, and almost all of them had resistant genotypes in their CSF that were essentially resistant to the regimens that they were on. So I think that in that case, if you hadn't done the spinal tap and looked for the, the new escape virus, you wouldn't have realized not only that there was untreated HIV there, you also wouldn't have been able to target your therapy to integrate that resistance. So I think there are examples, but this is a rare example. I do a fair amount of spinal taps for our patients in our clinic because many people come in saying, well, I'm having some new problems and it's not quite clear and it's something that I'm comfortable doing. But I think that if you have a patient who seems very stable for a long time, cognitively and neurologically, and has a new symptom or syndrome on suppressive treatment, I think that's a case in which doing a spinal tap makes sense. In the, in the past, children, because of their neuro, neuropsychological, neurocognitive development, actually foreshorten or are very sensitive uh, compared to adults. Mm -hmm. There's a development rather than loss, but actually yeah. gaining milestones. Yeah. Is there any information now in children about the subtle um, levels of impairment that uh, might be related to HIV disease or untreated HIV disease? That it, so we're not seeing um, AIDS, dementia in children any longer, right. but there's hands showing up in children. Right. Well, it's, I mean, it's hard to define hand in children. I think it's exactly what you're saying. You think of it more like they're not reaching their milestones or they have developmental delay versus they have some kind of, you know, accumulated impairment. Um, and there are some very nice studies looking at children. Of course, many of them are not domestic anymore because we have so, so few uh, pediatric infections. There's actually one study that was presented at Croy was looking at the impact of early versus slightly deferred therapy in children on neuropsychological outcomes. And surprisingly to me, actually, the children with deferred therapy did just as well. <clears throat> so they did all have some mild level of sort of developmental delay compared to their age-adjusted, uninfected peers. 
but actually deferring therapy by over a year was actually okay for them. Okay. Um, vitamin D again. <laughs> this is um, this is captioned. Um, anecdotally, we've seen improvements in concentration and memory in HIV patients when vitamin D is replaced. Any real data on this? I'm not aware of any data on that. I mean, I think that there's a lot of sort of anecdotal experiences with several different kinds of things. Uh, vitamin D, there's been, you know, older studies that used memantine or other types of drugs, and patients did often report improvements. One of the issues that we have in the field is it's very hard to make large enough studies where you have sort of an intervention like vitamin D in patients who all sort of fit the same cohort. So you'd want patients who have cognitive impairment, who are on therapy, a large number of patients who you can test in some way and then give an intervention and then look at an outcome. I think it would be a good study to do because we're looking always for new therapies. But I don't think that there's a clear um, physiologic rationale that I can think of that that would be something that would necessarily work. This is a question in which um, people in the audience might be able to help each other in a communal sense. Does anyone have a resource for cognitive neurologic testing for people living with HIV uh, with Medicaid? Is there, is there a source of payment for doing neuropsychological testing in New York City or in the New York metropolitan area? Anybody? Anyone doing it in the audience? Okay, so like many we have some that, yes. At Montefiore. Would you have to refer someone through the HIV clinic then or refer directly? For any adult. Okay. So whoever asked the question or any others, could you stand up so people can actually come and find you afterwards and get the information? Thank you. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you. So, there you go. So, of course, the Bronx always is a little bit ahead of the third. <laughs> and that's because it's the only part of New York that's connected to the mainland. Uh, um, when I first... Um, came back to New York in 1981 at the beginning of the HIV epidemic, and I was sort of deciding whether to come back to New York. I had been away for a long time. I was told that everything happens first in the Bronx. <laughs> and I said, no, that couldn't be. But as I lived and worked in the Bronx for 10 years, I found it to be true. So I'm very happy to hear that Montefiore and Einstein is, in fact, sounds like the only place where that's being offered. <laughs>